0: As karma come for Frank LaRose, we'll be talking about it on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Lisa Garvin, and we do start with Frank LaRose. Frank LaRose seemed like a serious candidate for the U.S. Senate once. He actually seemed like a serious person and politician once, but he's blown that away. Lisa, what's the clear sign that his campaign for the U.S. Senate has foundered. A decided lack of money.
1: So his campaign disclosure report that he filed showed that he raised just under a million dollars from July through September. He got about $791,000 from contributors and a $250,000 personal loan to his campaign. So that comes to $868,000. But when you think about it, costs a million dollars for just one week of television ads, which I haven't seen any from him yet. Um, and you have to compare. Compare that to his independently wealthy opponents. Matt Dolan currently has six point seven million dollars in his bank account. Bernie Moreno has five million, and they both can loan themselves more money if they need it. When we talked to some anonymous Ohio Republican operatives, one of them said the viability of LaRose's candidacy is on life support. And opponents pounced on this. A Dolan strategist Chris Maloney says, well, it was underwhelming as expected. He said that LaRose will need a massive outside soft money bailout to get through this. And LaRose has a super PAC. It's called the Leadership for Ohio Fund. It has raised a million dollar earlier this year but their next disclosure report isn't due till december so we really don't know how much that pack has raised and to be fair the money doesn't include he had an october 3rd fundraiser in chicago that was attended by illinois billionaire richard uline who as we know donated a couple million dollars to the uh, no on issue one back in august
0: It is hard to shake the loser tag, though. I mean, he became, partly because of us, the face of issue one in August, where they were trying to convince Ohioans that it was in their best interest to reduce the power of their vote. A preposterous proposition. Ohioans saw through it, but he was the poster child. He went all over the state mostly in rural areas, trying to convince people to pass it, saying in one side of his mouth that it's not about abortion. On the other side of his mouth, it's all about abortion, because if they raised the percentage of votes to pass the constitutional amendment, the abortion amendment on the November ballot would be harder to pass. And everybody knows it. He put his full faith and credit behind it, and he lost big, and everybody knows it. He also, he used to be somebody you took seriously. And then right before he ran for re-election, he started talking out of both sides of his mouth about the sanctity and safety of elections. Like He would back Trump saying that the election system is cooked, but then he would say, no, 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 it's all good in Ohio. But he was trying to sow that doubt. It's one of the reasons we didn't endorse him. We endorsed all the other incumbents for statewide office, but we didn't endorse him because he became a weasel and he became more of a weasel all through issue one and the abortion argument. And people see it. And I think the campaign contributors are seeing him as a loser and they don't want to get behind a loser. There is one outside the state, though, Lisa, person that could just give him all the money he wants uh, although that could hurt him, right? Because it's outside the state. Morning. Are you
1: talking about Richard U- Uline? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we haven't heard how much he's given uh, LaRose. I mean, it doesn't seem to appear, his name doesn't seem to appear in this latest report, but, you know, if he went to this fundraiser, he's probably going to be giving him money. Uh, you know, it's it's a shame because I remember two years ago writing about LaRose as kind of a sensible guy, you know? right. But then he was he tried to walk that tightrope between a extremism and pragmatism, and he fell on the wrong side.
0: Well, he certainly fell on it hard with issue one, which was one of the sleaziest things people have foisted upon the voters in this state. Remember, they outlawed August elections, and then they snuck this one on, thinking no one would pay attention. Uh, it, it is surprising. The, the weird thing is, how do you do it? If you're a sensible straightforward politician, which he seemed to be. What is the siren song you hear that sucks you into the ridiculous Trumpism extremism? How do you give up your character? I mean, Bernie Moreno, we had all profiling him over the weekend. Same thing. He was a normal guy that was respected in Cleveland and now complete Trumper out on the furthest reaches of the fringe. They, I don't get they, it. They want those MAGA votes. I guess. But I mean, you give up who you are. You give up your integrity. You give up your character all in the chase of a pursuit. I guess it's one of those ends justify the means. I, I don't understand it. Most people I know would not change who they are overnight in pursuit of some level of power. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Longtime Northeast Ohio politician Dennis Kucinich has spent much of this year managing the long shot campaign of anti-vaxxer Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Suddenly, Kucinich is gone from that campaign. Layla, what do we know?
2: Well, we know that Amaryllis Kennedy, RFK Jr.'s daughter-in-law and the and former co-campaign manager, is going to take over this campaign, though she doesn't really appear to have much political experience. The New York Times said that she's a former CIA agent and a memoirist who pretty much uses social media frequently to criticize the U.S.'s involvement in foreign wars. And the reason for Kucinich's depart- departure is still pretty unclear. He, he declined to answer Cleveland.com's questions about it. But we do know that the timing is interesting. I mean, this is happening a week after Kennedy decided to end his Democratic primary challenge to President Biden and would continue his campaign as a, as an independent candidate. It sounds as if Kucinich is leaving the campaign on good terms, though. I mean, Kennedy said very kind things about Kucinich and his wisdom and his impact on, on the campaign. So, so far, we don't know much about what the motivation is here.
0: Yeah, the abruptness of it raises questions. It it seemed like it was just made for Kucinich. This was the kind of campaign that he would love. And he did invest himself quite heavily in it. And then just overnight is gone. I suspect there is an explanation. I suspect Kennedy really didn't want to lose Kucinich. Kucinich has the ability to attract some money, especially from the West Coast. Uh, So eventually, maybe we'll find out what the real reason is you listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Laura, what are some of the biggest lies coming out of the campaign against the abortion amendment on the November ballot in Ohio? We mentioned yesterday that because Ohio seems ready to vote for this, the people battling it are up against the brick wall. And so they're resorting to some sleazy tactics.
3: Yeah, they're basically telling <laughs> They're telling people that abortions are already legal here and that kids are going to be able to get abortions without their parents' permission, that kids could get sex changes on their own. And if you see the yard signs, they say protect parents' rights, which is such a misleading motto because it's like, which parents are you talking about? And this idea that kids could just go get an abortion without talking to their parents is is one that's probably going to end up in the courts, but there's no automatic you know, sign off that a 15 year old could walk into a clinic. And so Laura Hancock looked into this. She had recently spoken to legal experts um, talking about that claim about gender-affirming care because they were saying kids are going to get these sex changes without their parents' permission. And that's a real stretch and a misdirection, they said. Parents are required to give consent for almost all medical procedures for people under 18. And the way the law is now, they'd have to petition a court uh, to get an abortion without it. So while attorneys with the Protect Women Ohio campaign say they believe the amendment supersedes any Ohio law and that use of the term the individual Dave Yost said as much that this is an up-in-the-air question.
0: And remember, Protect Women Ohio is a phony euphemism. Yes, it is. It's the opposite of what this is about. Uh, (laughs) If they're fighting this hard, what you really have to count on is for the voters, just read the amendment. Right. Forget all the—it's not that long. Just read it and see what it says because they are trying to say— this will be Wild West. It won't even be like it was under Roe v. Wade. It'll be, you know, anybody, anytime can have an abortion. I mean, they're arguing you can have an abortion up until nine months, which is just preposterous.
3: And they're saying it's going to allow taxpayer dollars to be used for painful late-term abortions. But the proposed amendment specifically says viability, which is around 22 to 24 weeks. And after that, it would be banned unless a patient's treating physician believes an abortion is necessary to protect the patient's life or health. First of all, I'd like to point out not very many people are having late term abortions in no. Ohio. It's a very small number. And right. it's probably because of a medical problem. And the baby might not live if the baby were to be born. And so this is such a misdirection to say, oh, I, you know, you keep nine and nine months then you're going to go in and have an abortion. That's not happening. And they, they say, well, for the women's health, the, the doctor could say that's for their mental health or whatever, you know it's not, I mean, let's be reasonable. People are reasonable. And this is not a decision that any women, any woman is taking lightly.
0: No. And and like I said, they're, they're up against it. The, the, every poll shows that Ohioans are in favor of this. And as we've noted, people aren't even reading much about it because they've made up their minds. So they're up against it. And it's sad that they're resorting to these kind of tactics. It's kind of, remind you of the red China ads back when they were trying to deal with HB6 instead of dealing with it straightforwardly. Ohioans proved an issue one, though, that they're paying attention. I suspect this is falling on deaf ears. It's not going to change many minds. And three weeks from today, this will probably be adopted. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Remember that drawing at Oberlin College that was recently identified as having been looted by Nazis? The one that the college immediately claimed to have legally without doing any research or knowing what they were talking about? Not so much, it turns out. Lisa, what's the latest?
1: Well, they're still saying that they got it legally in 1958, but they have voluntarily released this drawing. The Allen Memorial Art Museum at Oberlin did release its claim on a 1911 watercolor and pencil drawing by early 20th century Viennese artist Egon Schiele. They've had it since 1958. It was stolen from an Austrian-Jewish art collector, Fritz Grunbaum, by the Nazis. Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg, who's been looking into this drawing and also one at the Carnegie Museums of Pittsburgh, said that both Carnegie and Allen have signed voluntary stipulation to return these Drawings to Grunbaum's heirs. Carnegie happened to have a 1917 portrait of a man by Sheila. So, two of nine drawings by Sheila have been returned to the heirs. And it's clear, they say, that two pieces that, you know, the in question were stolen by Nazis and brought to the United States. Oberlin said they did a whole lot of research on the provenance and they concluded that they obtained it legally, but they did say that the Manhattan DA raised questions so they are returning it voluntarily. Six of these nine drawings that have been repatriated will be going on sale November 9th and 11th at Christie's New York City. They're estimated to bring in a total of 4.7 to 9 million dollars.
0: Yeah, I I do believe Oberlin believed at the time they got it legally. The one thing that didn't seem right is when this was raised by prosecutors, they immediately were in defense mode. No, 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 no. We're we're sure we're sure. Instead of saying, wow, they've raised some interesting questions, we're going to look into it and do the right thing. That was the surprise that the fact that the prosecutors are right and that Oberlin does have to give it up is less surprising. We just we talked about it at the time. The, the public relations reaction really sh- struck an off note. And they should have said, huh, this is new information. We're going to look at it and then we'll find out what's real. But their
1: argument was back then in 1958, when they obtained the drawing the museum was headed by Charles Parkhurst, who is a monuments man. Those were the men who helped track down and return looted art by the Nazis during World War II. And Oberlin said, well, it's inconceivable that Parkhurst would have knowingly purchased any artwork that he believed might have been stolen.
0: No, and I don't think anybody ever said that anybody did knowingly do it. It's just when the prosecutors came out and said, we believe that's looted by Nazis, the right answer from Oberlin would have been, huh, that's interesting. Let us look into it and we'll do the right thing instead of being defensive as they were. You're listening to Today in Ohio. For several years, the story has been that Cleveland is losing police officers and cannot find people willing to become the next generation. That suddenly changed, and a new move by Mayor Justin Bibb could make it even better. Layla, what's going on? Yeah, the
2: good news is that the strategies seem to be working. Since Mayor Bibb announced major pay increases and sign-on bonuses in August, applications are up forty-five percent to the uh, to the police academy. From July first to September thirtieth, the police department received two hundred ninety-five applications, and this is important because the city is budgeted to have just shy of 1,500 officers, and they've been hovering at around 1,200. Last year, the police department lost 168 officers, and so far this year, they're down another 133. So the city attributes the application increase to several factors. The cadet's salary has been increased from $16 an hour to 24, and cadets entering the academy with a college degree or those who have been in the military will enter at a higher level. Also, the city's offering these $5,000 sign on bonuses, which are great, even though there are a few strings attached to those, of course. And uh, Tri C will reimburse recruits for their out of pocket expenses if they attend the school's academy. That's their school's academy. So it seems that strategy of sweetening the deal has really worked for Bibb so far.
0: The idea of raising the pay is a good one, but Cleveland is still below the other cities in Ohio and i wonder how that plays out in the recruiting
2: yeah that's true i mean they they also so last week there was another development uh along these lines too the cleveland police union approved contract changes that boosted their pay and agreed to they agreed to change from 8 hour shifts to 12 hour shifts and That change in the length of shifts is intended to create a better balance considering how much has been spent on overtime in recent years and how burned out officers get when they are mandated to work those overtime shifts to ensure adequate coverage of the city. The 12-hour shifts let the city use their resources better with less overtime. And as for that pay bump, the highest-ranking officers, those with at least five years in the department and all supervisors are going to be getting a 14% increase to their base pay under the agreement and lower ranking officers will get a 2.5% increase. So taken together with an 11% three-year pay bump that was negotiated last year, the highest ranking officers are going to have their wages increased by nearly 25% since Bib took office and the lower ranking officers will see a nearly 14% bump since Bib started. So in other words, you know, since 2022 Rank and file officers are going to have moved from the range of 55,000 to 68,000 to 63,000 to 84,000. And that is significant. I mean, like you said, this still is not the highest in Ohio. Cleveland's wages are the middle they, they went from being in the middle of the pack to a level where the city is paying more than three quarters of Ohio's police departments. So still not the top, but in that top range.
0: Yeah, and and look with all they're doing in what you said in the first part about trying to get recruits in, very smart, and they're seeing success. I mean this was a challenge that many cities face. It's not Cleveland alone by any means. But for the mayor to have come up with something that gets more people interested, you got to chuck it up to success. I would argue that the whole crime problem has been Bibbs' first genuine crisis as mayor. You've had the gun violence and you've had the drop in police ranks. Uh, and the way he's dealt with that, both of those things, has been effective. This story shows the recruiting's effective and the work they've done with the state and the sheriff and the feds to get bad guys off the street has slowed the rate of all the violent gun crimes. So showing some signs of success. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Laura, as the UAW increases the number of plants, when it is striking, have we seen any more ramifications in Cleveland?
3: Well, no new strikes have been announced, but they're not announcing them ahead of time anymore. So, GM, Ford and Stellantis plants might see workers, sorry, workers walk out without warning, but we haven't seen any more this week. We are getting daily emails from Ford. They started coming a couple weeks ago, and they say about 19,000 people workers are affected across the country. So, I believe the one they sent late last night, they're saying these are on 9:30 said that strikes in Kentucky and Chicago had affected a Sterling plant. So no more in the cl- the Cleveland area. We have a bunch, though, um, 100 uh, on strike at the Stellantis Parts Warehouse in Streetsboro. That started S- September 22nd. Ford laid off 372 employees at the Cleveland Engine Plant in Park, 130 workers at General Motors Parma Metal Center. The Lima engine plant, 184. And these things are all interconnected. That's what Ford keeps trying to tell us is that you go strike somewhere and then the people somewhere else are going to lose their job because they have nothing to do because those parts aren't being made right now.
0: Yeah, you don't really get the sense, though, that the union is weakening on this. Their resolve seems as solid as it's ever been, uh, and they aim to get what they want from the the auto companies. Uh, you got to think that if not now, very soon – It's going to hit the bottom line. They won't have the cars to sell. The lots will be empty. uh, And that's going to hurt them even more.
3: And it's, you know, we barely, I don't even know if we've really recovered the auto sales from the pandemic when they didn't have the computer chips, right? Remember how hard it was to even find a car to buy? I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how consumers react.
0: The problem they have is that executive pay in this country mm-hmm. has become ridiculous compared yeah. to the rank and file pay and the rank and file are keep pointing to that even the president pointed to that when he visited the picket line and I just I don't see that the car companies are going to win the PR battle. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We talked about the Oberlin Museum. Let's talk about another. What caused a fire at the Library of the Western Reserve Historical Society, and how much damage did it do, Lisa?
1: Yeah, that fire was September 28th in the Western Reserve Historical Society Library, and they really don't know what caused it. They're closing it for six to nine months. They have a lot of repair to do. There were smoke, soot, and water damage. Uh, CEO Kelly Falcone Hall says they'll be working during these months, to determine the cause of the fire and the extent of the damage and the cost to repair it all. There were a bunch of archival documents in the basement that suffered water damage. They were laid out on a table to be collated and filed, and they got just rained on by water from the fire hoses. They've now stored those documents in a refrigerator truck, and they're going to be working with conservators from Chicago to preserve and also working with a Cleveland-based company, for Property Restoration, to fix all that. So they really don't don't know what happened. The fire, though, did occur just weeks after the Western Reserve Historical Society Library completed an emergency plan as part of their effort to seek accreditation from the American Association of Museums.
0: I wonder what kind of records we're talking about and whether they had work to get any of them digitized. One of the best ways to make sure things are preserved is to digitize them. Uh, and maybe that's what they were right. doing when they laid them out on the table. But hopefully it's nothing really valuable that's been lost and they'll be able to bring it back. I can't believe we didn't hear about this fire for weeks, Yeah, yeah.
1: And I, I wonder because some of my father's papers and documents, my grandfather's papers and documents are at that historical society. I hope
0: they're okay. Yeah, yeah, I do too. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cuyahoga County Executive Chris Ronayne talks a good game about improving services for people as they leave prison. He made a big presentation last week on the millions of dollars in need for them. So, Layla, how did he justify cutting the budget for those very services?
2: Yeah. Last week, he and Equitable Housing Advocates gave this presentation on a report that laid out $38 million in needs to provide housing and services for people who were formerly incarcerated. And the, the county's plan calls for coming up with that money, tapping both public and private sources over the next few years, which he says would directly help 1,300 people. Of that total cost, $25 million of it would be to create or preserve affordable housing units. But it turns out that Ronane is meanwhile seeking to cut funding for the county's Office of Reentry, which is tasked with researching and implementing the most effective ways to help formerly incarcerated people transition to life outside jail or prison. Reporter Lucas DePrilli discovered that Ronane's proposed budget includes a 3.5% decrease between 2023 and 2024 for that office. And Ronane's spokeswoman said the housing report would actually be referred to the Department of Housing and Community Development to inform an overall affordable housing strategy. This is a department that Ronayne created after taking office. But in addressing why the office of reentry was cut, the spokeswoman said, well, funding for that office could come from private sources, but she, she didn't say what those could be. Currently, it's funded entirely with money from the county's health and human services levy. So it's kind of a bad look. It makes him look really hypocritical to be pushing this huge plan to to help people coming out of the prison system while simultaneously cutting the budget for the office of reentry.
0: He's kind of developed a record though for making grand vision speeches with no real detail. We've talked about, he's probably done it four or five times just in the past few months where, I'm going to do this, wait for the details. And then there are no details. It's the opposite of Justin Bibb. When he announces something, he generally has all the brass tacks involved. I suspect this is more of a public relations fumble than it is a policy decision. I bet that there's they have a plan that they're actually not cutting this the way it appears. But when Lucas asked about it, they just fumbled explaining it. I mean, it doesn't yeah, make that's sense.
2: A, that seems to be a chronic problem, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've done this a couple times with the with with this administration. And and Lucas is very direct. You know, he's not he's not <laughs> hiding what he's after and he uh, he gives them every opportunity to respond. No, I it's... know.
0: I know. And they just fumble it. I, I would love to know what's really going on in their minds, but they just don't seem to have any thought about communicating it clearly. You know, it's just those big flowery speeches about I'm going to save the world with no real details what you mentioned another one he he had done a big announcement about something he was going to do and then when lucas looked there was no money in the budget for it what was that yeah, one? yeah
2: that was that was the immigration office <laughs> yeah. that he wants to develop and and sounded like it was going to become a brick and mortar facility and some staffing and stuff but at first i mean we're, we're he's taking a fine-tooth comb to this county budget proposal uh but and so he's still in the process of that but at first glance, he didn't. He didn't find that money for that for that project.
0: No. Well, so, maybe, okay. Maybe it's hidden in there, and there were, we'll. You
2: know, we'll maybe. It's, so heads up to the county. He's going to ask about that. So you might want to get an answer ready.
0: Maybe they're clawing back the slush funds. You never know. <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland's recycling program has been beset for years by hurdles you just don't see in the suburbs. The latest incarnation of its recycling program had some promise. Laura, is that promise being realized?
3: Yes, this is a good news story. They are on their way to success. And remember, this is an opt-in program. That's what Justin Bibb decided to do to get rid of all the contamination of the recycling is basically say, if you want in, you tell us, you'll give you a sticker, and you can learn the rules. So more than 71,800 households have enrolled in this voluntary program. That's about half of the city's residential trash collection customers. And when it first rolled out in June of 2022, there was just 32,000. So we've more than doubled in a year, less than a year and a half. And I love this. They've greatly decreased their wish cycling. So that's when you put in stuff that you wish would be recycled. These rates were hovering around 60% uh, for the contamination, and now we're down to 15%. So they haven't had to pay any extra to Rumpke for the uh, contamination contamination basically if it's too contaminated they pay an extra fee and I want to go over what you can actually recycle in Cleveland because I don't even think I can recycle it in my suburb and I think this is great news you can recycle cool whip containers and pizza boxes and juice boxes in Cleveland Hmm. so no plastic bags no shrink wrap but there's a lot of stuff that you can put in there that that is fine.
2: Whoa! But you ha- you can't throw a contaminated pizza box in there.
3: No, they do right? tell you that you know get the get, take that little greasy paper thing out. But as long as it's mostly paper, they have no problem recycling it. Their their no list is like cassette tapes, bed sheets, metal chains, <laughs> garden hoses. I'm like, who are putting these in the recycling bin? <laughs>
2: Well, in clamshells, no, the, the, the clamshells that like strawberries come mm-hmm. in. Yes, those can't re- they, that's a big that's a big one that people don't realize you cannot recycle those.
3: Yeah, I know. I feel like I go through ever every time my husband puts stuff in. It's like the packaging off the box, you know, like the plastic wrap. It's like no, you can't recycle this. But mm. there are things that on this list that you can recycle that I did not think you could. So that's good news and people should check their lists. What
0: what about the issue they had when we wrote about this that they had to put stickers on yeah, regular trash bins for recycling. It was well, so confusing. It's not confusing. a regular
3: trash bin. It's a blue bin. The thing is, people were using them for regular trash. Mm-hmm. So, to differentiate, because it was already a recycling bin, you put a sticker on. Now, they are phasing that out in the first half of 2024. They're going to retrieve any blue bins that don't have stickers when people are not <laughs> using them for recycling. But in the meantime, if you're recycling, you got to have a sticker.
0: So they're going to be going into people's backyards and taking their bins because they don't have stickers on them? That sounds like that yeah, could they, be They interesting. do it during
3: trash day, Chris, when they're out on the curb.
0: <laughs> what if they're not on the curb, though? I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a whole... I mean, it
3: that, probably won't happen all in one week, is my guess.
0: Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Tuesday. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. We'll be talking about the news again on Wednesday.